Mark was a close uh, disciple of Jesus. It wasn't uh, one of the apostles, but um, uh, we read about uh, John Mark. Uh, of course, he went with Barnabas and uh, Paul on a missionary journey. He also was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He ran away, um, uh, losing his, uh, his clothes. It's the shortest of all the gospel accounts. Uh, He doesn't have a long introduction, uh, but he gets straight into the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus. And um, but like the other writers of the gospel, Matthew, uh, Luke, and John, he does bring uh, to attention the fact that um, Jesus' coming was foretold by the prophets, and particularly Isaiah, Isaiah chapter forty, where it foretells of preparing the way for the Lord with a messenger and this messenger is uh, the Lord that Isaiah actually uses Yahweh the Lord Uh, so we see that in verse 15 that Jesus starts preaching the gospel of God in Galilee and from this people change and hear as they hear and meet Jesus and that's what I've titled the sermon today gospel change So what is this change about and why is this change? How does it come about? Well, the answers are in these first 20 verses. Let me read them to you. Beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie... I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He's with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word as it's contained here in the scriptures and help us to understand, help us to apply, help us to live in the light of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me give you a reason for the, uh, for the sermon today, uh, the topic gospel change. We all change. Uh, we all see this. We change uh, uh, physically and mentally and emotionally as we uh, grow up. We grow older. We grow wiser, a little more able, a little less able. Uh, we grow out. Uh, we, we change our views. We change our opinions in time. But what actually brings spiritual change? Have you thought about it? I've seen change in my life, spiritually. But why and how does it happen? And I've also seen people who I believe were solid, believing Christians change. And some of them change away from the gospel. Some of them desert and reject Jesus after a time. And there are others who come along to a service or a worship And you might say they've been doing that for years and yet they don't change. There is no change in their lives. So how does this change happen and why should it happen? And others too say the same things. And uh, the gospel really should change us to live differently. And the challenge is if you're a believer, it's not that you cannot change is sometimes that you don't want to change. And if you're an unbeliever, that, you, that you've rejected the change for some reason. In either, in either case, it's a, a sense of unbelief. And here at Exchange, we state it very clearly. Uh, Jesus changes everything. Or you could retitle that, same thing, the gospel changes everything. Some churches put God's grace changes everything. And we need to understand why. It's not just, um, we we need to understand that word gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does the gospel, why does Jesus change everything? And of course, there are several different ways we use the word gospel. We talk about the gospel as a particular body of literature. It's a unique sort of literature. The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel of Matthew. They are, they are salvation history accounts. They are accounts of how God has entered into our history. And so uh, if, if you're using proper English, you put a capital G, the Gospel of Mark. But there's other ways we use that word, and particularly the word means good news. It is a pronouncement. It is an announcement. It is a proclamation of what God is doing and God has done. And um, that's that's particularly evident when we read uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the gospel announcement. And Jesus came uh, declaring the gospel. 
But there's a third way which uh, that word is used, and, th- and this way is particularly important in that it is a whole way of living. It is a whole way of thinking about life. Uh, the gospel changes everything. And um, we see that in, through, throughout the scriptures, uh, the effect of the gospel is transforming, is changing people in the way they think, in the way they live. Uh, we see that, for example, um, in Romans 1.9, it says, For God is my witness whom I'm served with my spirit in the gospel of his son. In other words, in living out the gospel, whom, uh, God is my witness whom I serve. Or in Romans uh, 1.16, it's a very well-known verse, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation uh, to everyone who believes, the Jew and the non-Jew, the Gentile. The gospel message is the power of God because it lifts people, it transforms and changes things when it's outlined, explained and believed. And what does this power do? Well, it's, it's seen in the ability to completely change minds and hearts and lives, uh, our understanding of everything that happens, that God is working out his purposes, uh, even in the minute details of our lives. And it's most powerful because it does what no other power in the world can do. It saves us. It reconciles us to God. And it guarantees a place in the kingdom of God forever. And so when we say the gospel or Jesus changes everything, we're really saying this is a lens, this is a grid, this is a a framework for understanding life. This is a worldview as distinct from every other worldview as how we view life. And it does change us and it should change us. It's not just, oh, well, I've heard the gospel, I believe the gospel, I've gone from A to B to C, and now I've just got to live up to the gospel. No, it's A to Z. It's a complete view of life. We see the world differently. We see people differently. Our work, our leisure, our relationships as we live out the gospel. Yes, Jesus came into the world. There's the pronouncement. There's the gospel pronounced, but it has implications and it calls for change. And it can only be described as a radical change, a transformative change. It may happen very slowly. It it is not always immediate, but it does change us. And so here is what we want to look at in these first 20 verses in Mark's gospel. We see there's three things here. Firstly, it changes our identity. It says there, he will baptise, this is John speaking, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. What's the meaning of being baptised in the Holy Spirit? What's John actually saying there? And then in verse 15, Jesus, in, in summary of what he's saying in preaching, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is at hand. It changes our values. It changes our identity and it changes our values in life. And then finally, when he's walking along the side of Lake Galilee, he calls to these 
men who are fishermen, follow me and I will change your life. I will make you fishers of men. What's he mean by that? Is it talking about how we are to serve, how we are to live? So there's an identity change, verse 4 to 13. There's a values change, verse 14 and 15. And there's a beliefs change, verse 17 to 20. Let's think about this change of identity. And it seems hard to accept for some people because we like the way we are, don't we? <laughs> we, we? We like to live this way and that way. But there's much more to say on this than I can actually say today. But how does Mark tell us of our new identity? Well, it's about the baptism of Jesus. Now, what is that about, really? Did Jesus really need to get baptised by John? I mean, everyone was coming to him, and what was he doing? It was a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus need to repent of anything? No, he didn't, did he? Because he was without sin, and the Bible tells us that. Hebrews says uh, he identifies with us, but he was without sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians tells us, he who knew no sin, yes, he became sin, but he knew no sin. He was tempted, but he did not sin. So why was he baptised? Well, John's given instructions by God to prepare the way. And it tells us there in one of the other Gospels that he didn't recognise him until uh, this actual event that it seemed like heaven was torn open and the Holy Spirit descended him like a dove. And when John saw this and heard this voice, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with, he recognised this is the one. This is him whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And so uh, here, this is the witness of John uh, And, of course, in one of the Gospels it said, well, you know, why should I baptise you, Jesus? And Jesus said, well, to fulfil all righteousness. He didn't need to be baptised. But John says, it's him who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. See, what what we see there is an identification of who Jesus is. He is the one who is God's son, who is God. And he identifies with us. And he is the one who will baptise us with the Holy Spirit and change us. And baptising with the Spirit means that the Spirit will, as, as it were, wash over us, will work in us, live in us, and change our identity of who we are. And, you know, we learn who we are from an early age, um, I talk to my grandson and I say, who, now what's your name? Oh, your name's, is it Robert? It's Harry Robert. No, it's not, it's Harry Daldy. Okay, okay, yeah. You know your name. You know who you are. That's great. And we go on to learn about ourselves and as we grow up. And baptism is an identification, is a recognition that God washes over our lives, God works in our lives, that we become new people, that we're born again, as, as uh, it, it's put in John chapter 3. And what age 
It's given, well, that's a, that's a debatable point with some, but it's, perhaps it's not so important as that we're identified with God's people. Uh, there, are, there are people who have come to me and asking for, for baptism, but they have no identification with God's people. And so you take them through, I've taken them through Christianity Explained to explain what Christianity is all about. And when they see it, they see that, yes, we don't identify with God's people. They still don't want to become God's people, but often they still want some sort of recognition. But they don't recognise that they need to change their ways. And this is what God does in us as the Spirit works in us. You know, another way of thinking about it is that we're changed, but we're not sort of taken out of the world. We've still got to live our lives. Um, and, and, it's, and it's an identity change, or we might say it's, an, it's another view of our belonging. We're all here as citizens of Australia, or probably most of us. But for some people, citizenship is taken away, like a, a Neil Prakash, it's been in the news lately, who's in jail in Turkey and is known as terrorists fighting for ISIS. He's no longer an Australian citizen. But when we're born here, when we grow up here, we're automatically Australian citizens. Um, and we're accepted that way. But when the spirit of Jesus comes, we're given another citizenship. We have dual citizenship. And our citizenship is not only in Australia, but it's also in heaven. And so while we live out our lives in the nation of Australia, we are also his children by nature of God, citizens of heaven. We have that dual citizenship. And so why is this change important now? Well, it's not something that we achieve. It's not something that we do. We can do many good things. Um, but it's simply the way God works. It's simply the fact that God gives us his spirit. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift that we're given. We're changed. Our identity is changed. We're made new people. And if you're a religious person, you may think, well, Jesus is a great example. I've lived my life and I want to live up to his standards. And so while I've done some bad things, I'm given a second chance. But that's not the gospel. And all religions work that way, whichever religion you want to look at. Here's the standard, now you've got to live up to it. No, that's not Christianity. Or even those who are of no religion, they say they're no religion, they say they don't believe in God, but they still believe in doing good works and, and doing good things for rewards. And the more talents and the more abilities you have and the more you can do this or do that, then you should get rewarded for it. But that's counter to being a Christian. When you identify with Jesus, then by nature you are a child of God. And because God took away your offence, because God did not count your wrongs against you, because Jesus took them away on the cross and gave you the gift of the Spirit, therefore you are complete. You are wholly complete and perfect as God looks at you. We can look at ourselves and we see our imperfections, but God sees us complete and perfect in Christ.
And so Simon and Andrew, James and John all changed their identity on that day as they accepted and followed Jesus. Hearing and meeting him, then repenting and believing. And Mark wants to emphasise this change. And so that word uh, happens that, you know, they sort of left their nets immediately. But um, in fact, there was, uh, there was some conversations that I'll talk about a bit later that went on beforehand. Now, why is this a struggle for people to accept? You know, it's often in our thinking, does God really condemn me for being the way I am? Or it's often in our thinking, does God really lovely, love me despite who I am? We struggle to believe that God would love me and we want to rely on our good works. We struggle to think that can we really be accepted by God despite all the bad things, you know, looking at all those bad things I've done. But we come back to what Jesus has done. It's not what we have done. It's what Jesus has done. And his death was sufficient. His death demonstrates his love. That he died on the cross and exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He died so that we could obtain what we could not obtain ourselves. And the tension is, is that we need to hold that we're more sinful and wicked, as horrible as that sounds, than we dare want to believe, and yet we're more loved and more forgiven than we ever hoped for. It's an identity change, a connection with God, and that's what the good news is about. The gospel changes you in that way. But secondly, in Mark 14 and 15, the gospel changes our values, uh, what, what, we, what we hold to as, um, as good, as right. And uh, Mark 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It changes our values, it changes our actions, our behaviours. And if you look at the preaching um, in the Gospels, it's all about the kingdom, isn't it? Uh, you, you hear Jesus saying the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, or the kingdom, you've got to understand the kingdom like this. It's, uh, it's hidden, but it's being revealed. It's, it's, uh, it's seen like this, and, and he told many parables about the kingdom, how it's coming and how it is and how it, how it should be seen. When we go to the epistles, when we go to letters in the New Testament, there's very little is said about the kingdom. It's more about uh, preaching uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's more about the gospel of Christ. Why is that? Well, here's the thing. There's no change in the gospel content, but there's a change in explaining it. You see, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. So was Paul and so are the other apostles. But the content of his message was the kingdom is here. The time is fulfilled. That's what the prophet spoke about. That's the content of Jesus' message. But Paul in his letters is proclaiming that as well as the message of Jesus. 
It's about Jesus, the story of his life, his death, his resurrection. Christ crucified. He's proclaiming the fact that Jesus is the gospel. There's the gospel that the kingdom is here, but there's also the gospel that Jesus embodies it. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is both God and man, Lord and Saviour. And so Jesus proclaimed the gospel, the kingdom of God. The, the, the apostles proclaimed the gospel, but also said who he is and the fact that he is the king. And so we read here in Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now. What does that mean? It's a sphere of authority. When we, when we think about kingdoms, uh, we might think that it's a, a sort of a an area or a, a geographical area, uh, a realm, so to speak. But it's really, the word really means a rule, an administration, a system of operation, a, a rule of government, as it were. God is the king. And the Old Testament message was he, he, that God reigns. He reigns not only over Israel, but he reigns over all the world, over all the nations. And what Jesus came proclaiming is that that's now evident. The kingdom, God's reign is coming and has come. And they might not have realised at the time, but it was the person of Jesus that brought it. God's hour is struck. Everything that the Old Testament looked forward to was now God's reign upon the earth. Uh, it's a concept that was in the prophets uh, and they were talking about it all the time, that God would come. Isaiah said, the Lord will come. Yahweh will come. And uh, <clears throat> perhaps as we think about uh, rule and authority, we think uh, in this land we're, we're able to live fairly freely. Uh, we can choose to live how we like. Uh, we can have a tidy room or we can have a room that's very messy. Uh, we can live by the laws of the land or we can break the laws of the land. But if we break the laws of the land, we'll suffer some restriction or some punishment. And uh, children know that if they, uh, if they do what their parents say they shouldn't do. They break the rules and there should be some punishment. Um, but God's kingdom, God's rule is different from local government or state or federal government is the kingdom, as, as Jesus pronounced it, in some ways is hidden, but it awaits the full manifestation, the full proportions of his power and his glory. Yet the kingdom has come. Yet the kingdom is gradually coming and the kingdom will fully come. We've got to, again, hold these things in tension, understand what, what's going on. And it's all about the fact that there's a change of values going on in people's lives. And, and the only way to live what the gospel is proclaiming with peace and joy and love to others is having these values, these kingdom values. You can choose to live without peace and without joy uh, and that's the values of the world, the administrations of this world. You can live that way. But, and, and many people hold those values, whether they're religious or irreligious. Again, it's one of... Rewards. We do this and we should get that. 
Um, and the world system, if you like, the default the way of living is, is that way, that if you do this, you'll get a reward, or if you don't, you won't. Uh, but the gospel confronts us with a reversal of those values. In Mark, you'll see this clearly. As we read through Mark, it won't take long. It will probably take an hour or so to read through or less to the whole book of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. But you'll see that weakness is rewarded. You'll see that the powerless are lifted up. you see the way to God is become to recognise that we're poor in spirit. You see, the way to be rich is to give away what you have, to get right with God. And as you look at Jesus, he had these values too. He suffered. He was tortured. He didn't have a home. He didn't have riches. He died on a cross in such a humiliating and a demonstration of weakness. So how does he bring joy and peace and unity? Well, it starts in our hearts. Taking, the, taking away the values of the world and turning them upside down. And it's because what God has done for you, you value that more than anything else, that you'll find peace, you'll find joy, you'll find happiness, you'll find that his riches are far greater than the riches of this world. Now, I know it could sound offensive in some way that you've been lost, you're outcast. And you're bankrupt. And until you see that, I know it sounds terrible, then you won't truly see the values of the kingdom. The kingdom, Jesus said, is not a matter of food and drink. For life is more than food and clothing. And so you can't really get into the kingdom unless your values change and get reversed from the world's values. And at that point, that's exactly where God comes and gives you that peace and gives you that joy. You know, when you look at a homeless person, when I look at down there at Aldi and you see a homeless person sitting on the road, sitting on the side of the footpath there begging, and you look past the person, you look past the grime and the dirt and their position and their hope of looking for some financial assistance, and what you're looking at there is you see exactly as you are, before God without Christ. That's as you are, homeless and without resources, if you're without Christ. But the gospel radically changes you in that sense. It reverses those values. And then thirdly, not only do we have an identity change and a values change with the, with the kingdom values, but a belief change. In verse 17 to 20, we have the calling of the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. What was he really saying? I'll make you, I'll change your life, your way of life. And it's one thing to hear the call. It's another thing to heed the call. There's several points here to note. There's an urgency. Uh, there's a seeing of our condition, just as we talked about, that we need to see ourselves as bankrupt, as homeless. And there's also a seeing of the love of Jesus and a believing that he is the way. 
We might say it's an action matter to, to repent and believe, but it's also a heart matter. You can't have kingdom actions without some kingdom values behind it. And you can't have the kingdom values without having kingdom beliefs behind and within a person. Uh, when, when I travelled to Bangladesh about seven years ago, we had um, part of a course there we were doing uh, to help the locals was to what was called contextualisation. It's a big word, I know. But basically it was helping them apply the Bible to their context, in their context. And we looked at particularly the wedding ceremony. And they had many traditions and many customs perhaps that we might not have in our wedding ceremonies. And were these lining up with kingdom beliefs? The thing is that we got to understand what they actually did. That was their behaviours. But then we looked at why we asked the questions. And, we, and, of course, there was a translator and we had to ask questions in reverse and this way and that way. And we got to understand their values. And we started to plot these down on a, on a spreadsheet. So we had their behaviours and then we had their values. And then we looked at what's behind these values. What are their beliefs? And in some cases, there were some things that weren't in accordance with the Bible. There were some uh, spiritual uh, ideas, some ideas of, of some sort of animism or, or some, something that, that uh, showed them that, you know, the spirits wouldn't look on them kindly if they didn't do this sort of thing. There are other things that were just good to do. There wasn't the gospel or the Bible wasn't saying anything about it. But in order for them to change their behaviours, they needed to see their values and they needed to see the beliefs behind them. And that's really what we are seeing here, that these disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, actually changed their beliefs. And they saw in Jesus something they hadn't seen before. That's why they left their nets. They left their families. They left their father and their their hired servants and they followed Jesus. You know, in the same way we start of a new year, people, uh, many people make New Year's resolutions. I I guess a lot of us make those. And uh, we know after the year gets along that um, we haven't quite kept those. And uh, so we find in the next year that we're making the same resolutions or slightly different or slightly more. And why don't we change? It's because underneath our values there are these beliefs and and they sort of control us, bring us back to the way we want to do things perhaps or the way we think we should do things. And so it's really where the heart is. And the question can be posed to any one of us. What is our greatest love? If our greatest love is our families, we put our families before anything else, even before God, then that's what we value the most. If our greatest love is to have uh, you know, a clean house, a nice living area and all that, and we put that before anything else, then we'll be doing those things rather than honouring God in some way. Uh, what is our greatest love? Our hearts cannot be without some love, some supreme love. The only way to 
move those other loves away is replace it with some greater love. And that's what these disciples did. They replaced their love of fishing. They replaced their love for their families. It's not that they abandoned them, um, but they come to see what was so important. And there's, a, there's obviously a play on words when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. Um, but in the Old Testament, you need to understand fishing for men was actually, uh, if, if you understand that, it was a, a teaching that showed how urgent it was. In the Old Testament, it was about judgment. God was going to fish men and put hooks in them and take them away from their situations. That was a judgment that was coming. And so there's an urgency to this matter. There's a radical nowness. Jesus is preaching. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to repent. God has entered into the history. And you need to come to understand there's an urgency to take action. And so they left their businesses father and families, to learn from Jesus. It was about a life of learning, a life of service to God, a life of fellowship. But you need to see how they come to that place. Uh, Luke in particular gives us more of the account. You know, Mark leaves it out because Mark wants to, to emphasise, I think, the urgency. And so as you read through Mark's Gospel, you'll notice that word immediately. Mark has it about 35 times in his gospel compared to Matthew and Luke only about 12 or 14 times. So Mark is stressing the urgency to believe. But in Luke, uh, we have Jesus walking along the side of the lake, decided to stop the boats, gets in a boat and starts teaching uh, the crowds that were following him. And then if you remember that story, he says, well, finishes his teaching, he says, well, you know, let's go out a little bit, put down the nets. And Peter says to him, look, Lord, you know, we're professional fishermen here. Come on. We've been fishing all night and we haven't caught a thing. You really think that we're going to catch any more fish? Come on. Jesus said, but but if you say so, we'll do it. Okay. And out they go and they toss in their nets and you know what happens. They catch such an almighty catch of fish, their nets start to break and they call over the other boats to say, come and help us bring in this catch. And as Peter sees this, and as the other disciples see it, what does he say? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. See, now that's, that's the point of him coming to see that his love of other things needed to be replaced by the love for Jesus. I'm sure he'd actually heard Jesus well before, in fact, John's Gospel gives us that sense of they'd, they'd heard Jesus a number of times. Perhaps they'd seen him cast out demons. Perhaps they'd seen him heal people. So it wasn't just like, oh, Jesus, this is the first introduction. He comes walking along and, and says, come follow me. And they just all of a sudden, the snap of the fingers, leave their nets and everything and follow him. It's not like that at all. There was a gradual process of coming to understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And so Peter says here, I'm a sinful man. That's repentance. That's a recognition 
that I, I don't deserve you being around me. I'm, I can see how I am, that I haven't recognised who you are and I can't live up to your standards. And what does Jesus say to him at that point? Well, we read it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Uh, he says, uh, uh, I'm interested in you. I want you to come and follow me and I'll teach you how to fish men for fish for men. Mark keeps his count very simple and short to emphasise the urgency. But Luke, Matthew, John are talking about the importance of repentance and belief. And that's really the first step. And that's the other thing I'm going to say is that there's the urgency, there's a need for repentance, but there's also a recognition of how Jesus is involved in our lives and wants to be involved in our lives if we want to let him. And so uh, Peter is saying, you know, you're in command, you see me and I'm not worthy. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. I understand what your needs are. I understand what your livelihood is all about. But come and follow me and I'll show you a lot more. I'll show you how to live as God truly wants you to live. And you see, people don't see, uh, they don't see that need to change today. They don't see because they're locked in their systems of belief. Belief in themselves, belief in the world, they have, and many people have no concept at all of God in their lives or God in the world. Who is this God of the Bible? God who knows us, God who made things, God who, who is perfect in his nature and character, who creates and gives life. People don't know about God and therefore they're not going to come and accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. They have no hope and no inclination to do that. And what you have to remember here is these Israelites, these four men, uh, were taught from their earliest days about God. Uh, They were taught from children uh, about Moses and about the prophets. Uh, They knew about God and God's ways and God's dealings with Israel from way back, hundreds and hundreds of years back. And they were not ignorant in that sense. But there was a process of learning up until that day that hadn't realised God's purposes and plans through Jesus. And, and it's quite easy for us to forget that and to believe that people should just come to faith in an instant, in a flash, because they've just heard of Jesus. And if you're not a believer here today, let me tell you the way to get to know God you just don't find a good reference Bible like the ESV study Bible. That's good to have and certainly get one if you haven't got one. But I think what you should do is find a sincere Christian and start asking them questions on what they believe and why they believe it and seek to reference that back to the Bible, which is an historical account of all uh, that Jesus said and did. And it will show you, hopefully it will show you, why it is so good to accept God's free gifts and love and salvation and why God gives you the Holy Spirit. And better still, take time to get with another person, a Christian, uh, 
and read the Bible with them and ask what this is about. Read one of the gospel accounts and converse and ask questions. And it'll do several things. Uh, it'll show you that you don't really learn until you start asking questions and you're prepared to work at something, to learn something and to clear, be clear in your mind about why Christianity is a better way to live than any other way. And it certainly will help your Christian friend to understand his or her faith better. Uh, so you'll actually be helping them too. And I think even for Christians, there's a huge challenge to seek to learn and to grow. Uh, finally, it, it may not seem obvious, but this is a really a double call. And often people leave out the, the, one of these elements uh, they're often reduced or marginalised, particularly the element of repentance. Repentance and faith or repentance and belief, they go together. We've got to turn away from our self-centeredness and self-control and turn our lives over to Jesus' direction and control. And that's a decisive change. And that's believing the good news. But you can't uncouple believing from repenting. Now, in the Greek, just a little bit of uh, knowledge here, both verbs are what's called present imperative. That is, they have a continuing sense. They're not a sort of a once for all, that's it and done. They are a present imperative. That is, they're, they're imperative. There is a, a call to action and they have a continuing, ongoing sense. So when you repent, you continue to repent. Even as a Christian, we continue to repent and change and be changed, change our lives. And we continue to hold to our belief and we continue to grow in our understanding, our belief. Gospel change, it's an imperative. It's a call to humble service and it gives you a new identity, a new set of values for peace and joy and happiness and a renewed heart through repentance and faith. If you're a believer, then believe it more deeply. And if you're not a believer, then consider believing it because it will change your life and the way you see the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that uh, Mark is so clear and so uh, calling us in, in these uh, ways to believe, to change become more and more like Jesus and help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know whether we have another song, do we, guys? Or, or we, can, we can have... Uh, do you, you want to? Yeah. What are you going to sing? Uh, we'll sing This Is Amazing Grace. This Is Amazing Grace. Well, that's great. Thanks. Thanks, Dave.